Hello everyone, it's January 26th, 2021. Big show this week, we're taking a closer look at that SLS static fire now that the dust has settled at the test stand, and then we have Dr. Panos Siotras back to try his best at explaining Lambert's problem to us. Don't worry, we'll keep the math to a minimum. And liftoff. And we've created the tower. Welcome to episode 294 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So just a couple hours ago, we had the Transporter 1 mission by SpaceX. That's uh, from top of the show, Space News, which I did not watch because uh, mm. we were prepping for the show. But it looks <laughs> like everything went well. Mm-hmm. And that was a launch of like several or at least like over 100 small satellites of various types. I don't know what they were, but a lot of stuff, I think. Oh, well, yeah. Mike's saying 143. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> not only a lot, but like a lot of different types. Like... um at the bottom of the stack were, I don't know, like 10 or so uh, Starlinks, and then there was just a payload adapter with just a bunch of stuff bolted onto it. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, they did 10 or so Starlinks, so they didn't do the full batch. They just kind of put as many as they could. That's interesting because they put them into, you know, specific orbits. You know what I mean? So they got just 10 in that orbit. So does that mean that they're going to have to do another launch at that, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, I don't know what orbit they were going to, but I, I would imagine that, you know, when they can only launch a small handful, they're, you know, not going to get up to a multiple of the number of uh, satellites that they want in that orbit. But that's good because you're going to have to do replacement units anyway. So mm-hmm. I think that's probably just what they're, you know, kind of a get ahead instead of a full on deployment. So SLS Green Test Hot Fire follow-up. So last week we mentioned briefly the SLS Green Run. What's so interesting about this test that I failed to realize was that this is the simultaneous firing of four of these engines, you know, the RS-25s. And that's the first time in history that that's ever happened. You know, Hmm. these are big, powerful engines. So that's kind of a pretty cool hallmark there or a pretty Mm -hmm. cool milestone. Yeah, Scott Manley on YouTube said that um, they handed out commemorative earplugs to observers. I can only imagine how loud that was. These engines have such a cool heritage. Like, like each one of them has flown on multiple missions. Some of them, uh, there's one of them that has been on 12 flights. And that just kind of shocks me. Because I thought mm-hmm. that some of these were new, you know, because they did manufacture several, you know, like after the shuttle program, right? I thought that they did. Or I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't believe they manufactured any additional ones. They, you know, they did have to do upgrades to all of them. And one of those upgrades we'll talk about. Uh, in a sec here. Mm. So um, last week we talked about two issues that we didn't realize were two separate issues. One was uh, the MCF, the major component failure, and the other one was the shutdown. Um, and, and it turns out that these are <laughs> actually separate. So um, basically what, what caused the shutdown was uh, an APU so in the acronym that I'm going to use over and over is CAPU. I, I would like to say CAPU, but because <laughs> APU is its own acronym, I'm pretty sure this is CAPU. So that's core stage. We, we dropped the S. So C stands for core stage auxiliary power unit and the CPU, the, uh, the CAPU on engine two, uh, quote, exceeded the preset test limits. Um, and it, did so over a series of milliseconds. I'm assuming that uh, their sample rate is probably on the order of a millisecond. So they're seeing these limits exceeded over several samples. And so the computer decides to shut it down. Um, so a CAPU is one of those um, 
new additions to the uh, to the engine that was made after shuttle. The CAPUs, uh, there, there's one per engine, uh, and they drive the thrust vector control actuators. So you can think of it as either one CAPU per engine or one CAPU per pair of TVC actuators. And uh, these CAPUs are powered by turbines that run off of uh, hydrogen in the engine. So this is after the hydrogen's been heated up, but before it's been burned. Now, uh, shuttle, uh, also had APUs, um, but it didn't have, uh, APUs integrated with the engines. Instead, um, shuttle already had a power requirement during landing. They needed to be able to power, you know, the hydraulics, which, you know, chew up a pretty decent amount of power and they needed to be able to, to power them during landing, uh, notably when you don't have the main engines turned on. So instead of running APUs on the hydrogen that's burning in the engine, um, shuttle had APUs that were inside the orbiter and totally separate from the engines. They were actually in the back of, in the front of the, uh, cargo bay, um, and they were powered by hydrazine. And so, you know, if, you, if you're going to pull those engines out, if you want to power those TVCs, you got to build your own, uh, your own new power uh, supplies. Mm-hmm. Right, cool. I didn't know about that. Yeah. I, I was, just, I got to admit, like, obviously it shouldn't go in the show, but I was like, just looking at it, I was like, was, was there possible a mix up between hydrogen and hydrazine? Cause I know the APUs were definitely hydrazine <laughs> and, and they're similar yeah, yeah. words. And so I was like, <laughs> and that would be a mistake. That I'd make. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so interesting. But the APUs were all, you said that they were located at the front of the shuttle bay, right? Because. Oh no, they're I'm at the sure rear. You, yeah. They're oh, at they the are rear. at the rear. Yeah. Okay. So one of the really cool things that NASA says came out of this test and, you know, they're the ones to trust, but it, it seems a little shocking to me given how short a period of time we have here. Um, but NASA says that they actually, this test did demonstrate, um, the ability of a CAPU to shut down and other CAP, CAPUs to take up the load. Uh, from the failed unit. That, that's really cool. I mean, the, the shutdown happened so fast that I'm, I'm surprised that that was able to happen. But on the other hand, you know, being able to switch that load over quickly, um, would be advantageous when it involves pointing your spacecraft in the right direction. So the, uh, the shutdown happened one second after they began the gimbling sequence. Um, so David, that was your intuition last week, and you were dead on. That's funny, because I don't remember even what I said, but okay, I'll take it. <laughs> um, so this gimbal sequence was, there are a number of things that, that were unusual about this test um, that caused the shutdown that would not have happened in, in flight. The first one is that um, the gimbling sequence was intentionally overpowered. Um, they wanted to really stress the system, as you should, uh, in a test. And so they had all four engines gimbling to the extent, to, to their widest extent. Now, what's unusual is that the, the engine bells, as far as I can tell, didn't move a hair. So the failure must have occurred as they were, uh, pressure, you know, building up the pressure to be able to do this. In which case, it makes me think that not only are they, um, gimbling the engines to their fullest extent, but they're doing it as quick as they can, which you have to do with greater pressure, I'm assuming, in, in the hydraulic system. But then the, the other thing that happened here that wouldn't have happened in flight, 
is that they had intentionally narrow constraints on this test parameter. They didn't name the test parameter, um, but I'm a, I'm assuming. I mean, it has to do with the with the CAPU. Um, so I I I I don't know, and I, I don't feel comfortable making a guess because it really just would be a wild guess. But there there's some test parameter that they were looking at. They set intentionally narrow constraints. And this is a parameter that they don't plan on measuring in flight. It was just a, a parameter that they test on the pad. So this is such a a, a crazy situation that, I mean, it, it is very unlikely that this exact type of shutdown will ever happen again. Uh, you're you're more likely to lose TVC on one or more engine uh, if they can take if the CAPUs can you know hot swap then i guess it would be all the engines are would slowly lose uh tvc or uh, um uh authority right the ability to actually do the uh the thrust vectoring rather than having this shutdown happen which seems like a good mission rule um but in this case they 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 had the additional constraint of we don't want to break this <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. It, we can shut down safely as you can't in flight. And we really don't want to break our shiny new toy because it has to go to the launch pad by the end of the year. Um, and Bridenstine, this, this was before, uh, his recent retirement, uh, or, was stepping down from this role. I, I doubt that he's actually retired, but be, before he stepped down, he actually, uh, said, yeah, you know, we probably set this, um, this constraint too tightly. We probably could have been a little more generous in deciding when this was going to end the test. So it's kind of, kind of interesting that the way that this series of circumstances led to the shutdown. If, am I seeing this right? Cause this, this seems like, you know, like an error or a mistake really not, not just because, you know, it happened, but because it seemed like you had one set of people saying, let's move the hardware to basically, you know, push things to the limit while at the same time they'd set up software to be conservative. You know what I mean? Like maybe there wasn't the communication between them or I don't know, maybe I'm just being way too speculative. About I mean, that. that that's certainly possible. The way that I interpret it though, is more like um, they thought that their system could perform better than it did. They mm-hmm. said, okay, if we get nominal performance, we can do a and expect B to stay, mm-hmm. you know, at a certain limit. Right. That's the other um, thing. They, yeah just didn't have the expectation of these being connected in this kind of way. So yeah. No, or at that. least not expecting a failure to happen in this way, but you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the way the real world works. And, and notably this, uh, the CAPU that failed was on engine two in the live stream. You could hear them call uh, an MCF, a major component failure on engine four. So that that's a really good indicator that these are two separate issues. turns out the MCF actually happened um, one and a half seconds after ignition. And uh, we, we now know what the MCF was. Um, there was an instrumentation redundancy loss. So I don't know if this is flight instrumentation or test only, uh, instrumentation, but, uh, you, you know, we know that, um, a lot of things having to do with the engines have triple, uh, three different, uh, data streams. So double redundancy. I, I don't know if this was double or triple redundancy in this case, but, 
uh, a second and a half after ignition happened, um, one of those instrumentation lines failed. They didn't end the test because they still had enough redundancy to be able to trust the data that they were getting. So, so that's, that's the MCF. One other thing that was reported that is pretty obvious to, to most people is that they, we, last week I mentioned that they were doing not only a gimbal program, but a, a thrust program, throttling up and down. And, um, the, the throttle program they followed actually emulated their max Q profile where you, uh, throttle down during max Q. Um, and the thrust levels they were hitting were over a hundred percent. Um, and that's because of the engines that they're using, right? The, uh, the shuttle space shuttle main engines, uh, were initially built to, uh, get to a certain thrust level and then they did upgrades and they were able to exceed that thrust level. Um, total. Uh, simplification. It's a much more interesting story. Go, go check it out. Um, but basically, you know, they were able to get up to 109% thrust and that, that's what they did here, but they wanted to throttle down during max Q. So fallout rerunning this eighth test is still on the table. We don't know if they're going to do it or not. They really wanted to collect 250 seconds of data. They said that that's the amount of data that they needed to be happy flying this mission. They only got 67.2 seconds. Um, so that's a, that's a good argument for redoing the test. A, a really good argument for not redoing the test is meeting their schedule. Um, they really are having to push to be able to meet their current schedule. Um, but sad, a, a more satisfying reason, I think, is that these, uh, the, the, the core stage actually has uh, a lifetime. It is, you know, a, a non-reusable stage, but um, the fuel tanks are rated for a certain number of loading cycles of propellant loading cycles. Uh, they can only tank this thing up, fully tank it up nine times before they've exceeded its lifetime. And they've already tanked it up fully twice and like halfway once or twice. Is this because of like hydrogen embrittlement of the fuel tank or? I, I'm sure it's something like that. Yeah. Either the cold or the or the chemistry going on. Yeah. Something like that. How many more fuel ups would they need? Would there be a... Depends like on how bad dust? the conditions at the pad during launch might be. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you have certainly a wet dress rehearsal and then you have you know you need to be able to recycle for delays so and i would imagine that if you get up to that ninth fill you're going to be pretty anxious mm -hmm. that's not a good place to be <laughs> and artemis one right is this is what's going to be dropping off a lot of uh, small satellites on all sorts of different orbits on the way to the moon and at the moon right like this is mm -hmm. at least you know there isn't a, a, a there's no lives on board so of course, you want mm -hmm. it to go well, especially since, you know, how much money this thing has cost. If, if Artemis 1 oh, yeah. does not perform well, that could be bad. Yep. And that's one of the things that they've said is we'd rather have a failure now. We'd rather have delays now than during the launch. Which is why it's interesting that, what was it, Congress was, you know, debating on whether or not they wanted to fund this test in the first place, which I yeah. thought was astounding, yeah. really. And, and, you know... There are a lot of different people in Congress who help guide NASA. And right now, they've got some really experienced people on that committee. And it's like, come on, guys, you should know better than this. But that's what happens when you couple politics to science and engineering. Mm -hmm. It can be a great motivator. It's what got us to the moon the first time. But it can also be a great source of bad decisions sometimes. 
Let's do the three short and sweets. What is the first one, Dennis? First up, SpaceX buys offshore oil platforms to convert to spaceports. Public filings have revealed that SpaceX purchased two deepwater oil rigs off the coast of Texas with the goal of converting them into spaceports for their Starship launch vehicle. The rigs, which were originally going to be scrapped, were bought for $3.5 million each, or about 1% of their original cost. The rigs have been named Phobos and Deimos after the moons of Mars, and by being positioned offshore, the two mitigate launch and landing risk for high population density areas and lessen disruption to aviation airspace operations. The rigs currently have living quarters for 150 people, but will likely need a significant retrofit to support space operations. Next up, ThrustMe performs on orbit. So French startup ThrustMe has successfully demonstrated its innovative thruster technology aboard a CubeSat named Beihangkongshu-1. I think I said that right. Uh, the satellite was able to change its orbit by 700 meters over the span of two 90-minute burns in late December and early January, demonstrating its viability for commercial use. The key to ThrustMe's electric propulsion system is the use of iodine as a reaction mass instead of traditional elements such as xenon and krypton. In light of this success, ThrustMe will be delivering several of its thruster systems to clients later this year. So they're making a lot of progress very quickly. That's awesome. Yep. And finally, Starliner is up and running? Question mark. Now that Boeing has completed a full software review, Starliner's OFT2 mission is now targeting March 29th, but could be moved earlier to March 25th. Software updates aren't the only new features on a second test flight. Boeing has also added a flat-topped, non-jettisoned docking system cover that will hinge open and closed a la Dragon. This cover appears to be an added requirement to achieve 10 mission reuse. The currently targeted launch date is in conflict with SpaceX's Crew-1 and Crew-2 missions, which are planned to be taking up both of the available IDAs, but NASA will wait before deconflicting the schedule. Well, welcome everyone to the uh, interview portion of the podcast, and we have our uh, repeat guest uh, <laughs> who's going to tell us about some more wonderful stuff. Uh, in this case, we're going to be diving a little more into uh, orbital mechanics, but also, you know, potentially touching on some of the uh, uh, interesting uh, work uh, that is also being done. Uh, this is uh, the wonderful return of uh, Dr. Panos Tsiotras, uh, who is a IEEE fellow and a professor and David and Andrew Lewis chair at the Guggenheim School of Aerospace Engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Panos, welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. So if, if I remember correctly, um, during our last interview, which was about some of the, uh, the, the incredible like software, you know, that your team uh, or your group, uh, you know, has been developing in terms of, you know, navigating uh, in particular, mm -hmm. like around, you know, uh, spacecraft and things like mm -hmm. that. And I remember at one point you had talked about uh, Lambert's theorem, uh, which is essentially something related to orbital trajectories. And you, you, you told us about how elegant and beautiful the kind of geometry uh, and this theorem was. And so from that kind of uh, little kernel, we kind of had the idea of maybe bringing you back, but certainly, you know, expanding the conversation mm -hmm. uh, a lot more than just focusing purely on that. So, uh, Panos, would you uh, maybe uh, for any new listeners, uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, sure. Um, um, I'm a professor at Georgia Tech, <clears throat> the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia, in aerospace engineering. Uh, I've been there for, um, well, since 1998 now, many years. Uh, my work is on uh, controls, robotics and autonomous systems. Uh, this includes 
um, not only space that we will discuss today, but also uh, ground vehicles and aerial vehicles. For, for the work that we're doing in terms of space, uh, that I think your listeners are more interested in, uh, we're primarily interested in autonomous uh, rendezvous uh, and docking, and primarily uh, what people call proximitation, so anything you do in orbit uh, with um, perhaps autonomous uh, autonomous vehicles, let's say uh, robots, right? And I think I mentioned last time we had this um, this talk that uh, space robots is an area that is expanding for many different reasons. Most of them are kind of obvious. Robots are good at, at operating in environments that are not hostile to, to humans. And uh, of course, space is one of the uh, most hostile and inaccessible uh, place for humans. So if you really want to do something uh, very complicated, and actually if it's not a little bit further away than low Earth orbit, then you have to use some kind of uh, autonomous or semi-autonomous uh, vehicle or robot or something. So this is what we are interested in. Um, our research, and we can get to the specific details, uh, uh, falls under two areas, I would say. One is a perception part. Um, uh, so how you can use cameras or other sensors to understand where the vehicle is in respect to um, uh, the structure or the thing that you're working on. And then the control algorithms that develop the control algorithms that um, will help you move around without colliding, let's say, with uh, the object and, and so on and so forth. So that's the type of things that we're doing in the lab. Um, for uh, uh, for many years now, and and if you know if anyone wants to go back and check out that interview, that was on episode two seventy seven. If that's even too much for you, I, I really insist that you Google the uh, Astros um, <laughs> uh, test bed. I guess like oh uh, yeah that. yeah because uh, it's really that was something that was kind of like wow when I saw that and just mm -hmm. what it was what it was doing. Yeah, we should upgrade uh, update the uh, our website because now we have also. Um, uh, a robotic manipulator that we can use in addition to the platform mm. so we can actually now test more things right so we have a nice uh, robotic manipulator with a moving base that can simulate uh, the, the motion of uh, spacecraft in space and i think that's uh, one of the challenges i don't know if i mentioned last time we met um, people are used to seeing robots in terrestrial applications let's say in the factory floors that they're doing I don't know, mm -hmm. welding or whatever in a, in a, in a, perhaps in an automotive manufacturing facility. Um, you can probably try to do something similar in space. Maybe you have robots that go around and create some structure if it's, you know, in the future, who knows. Uh, but the problem here is that uh, the base is not fixed, right? So this is a free-floating <laughs> uh, robot, and that makes the, uh, the things more complicated, and that's what we're focusing on. So there are certain things that are similar when you move the robotic arm around to do the assembly or to do the manipulation in space. But one thing that makes it more challenging is that if, for example, your spacecraft is not very large, uh, it's kind of small uh, compared to the, uh, to the arm, uh, then when the arm moves, then the base moves. So it's a little bit uh, complicated to, to to choreograph this maneuver in order to do what you want to do. So mm -hmm. that's part of um, the algorithms that I mentioned that we're, we're developing, how to do that uh, when you have one robot or maybe have two robots and they want to collaborate together. It's like having two hands working together. It's a, mm -hmm. a cooperative uh, manipulation, for example. So these are the types of problems one encounters when... You know, works in space right uh, so there are already the complexity of computing or or, or controlling these um, uh, complex systems uh, but you have also the additional 
complexity because of um, you, you're in a space environment. You're flo free floating in space, right? And uh, going around, maybe right. in a low Earth orbit. Well, every 90 minutes, the illumination conditions change. You go to the eclipse, it becomes complete darkness. And you go very bright, and you know how how many vision systems <laughs> can handle that. So there are a lot of there are a lot of there are a lot of challenges for sure. And and I feel like any student encountering physics for the first time, right? Newton's first mm. law is such a difficult problem for them because we can basically ignore it in our everyday lives, essentially, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's just friction and dissipative forces all around us all the yeah. time, but not when you go on orbit. Mm. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, so that's one thing that challenges have to, uh, you have to a little bit change uh, your, your, your firm beliefs, <laughs> let's put it this way, and say, <laughs> well, you have, oh, wait a second, the sun is moving. So, so this, the light source that provides the, you know, the light is going to be changing all the time, right? So if you mm. do some terrestrial application, well, you expect if you do some kind of a job in the next one, two hours, uh, the, the light source is not going to change. The sun is not going to move very fast, right? Uh, but if it does, <clears throat> then you get very abrupt shadows appearing. Uh, which actually very often confuse uh, other uh, vision-based algorithms or image processing algorithms that have been developed for terrestrial applications. So, so yes, we can borrow some of the things that uh, people develop for terrestrial applications, terrestrial robots, but uh, when we go to space, we have to be a little bit smarter and a little bit uh, more sophisticated uh, because some of the things that happen in space, they're just uh, specific uh, for the space environment and we have to develop techniques that are tuned to be able to handle these types of peculiarities. So there are a lot of problems, and which is good for graduate students. I told my graduate students, you know, there's there's, there's a lot of problems, which means that you have job security, right? So <laughs> you'll be, you know, there are people who want to solve this problem, you become an expert on that, uh, that will be good. Uh, so there's no, there's no lack of problems and interesting and challenges uh, for these types of uh, applications. So like going back to like Dennis said, uh, like Newton's first law, um, you obviously have these algorithms to help you out, but how do you, contend with that because you have to have some kind of force acting on this vehicle in order to keep its position so what is it that you're like looking into the use of very small thrusters or something which i guess would be the only thing mm -hmm. or maybe like you know holding yourself onto the object that you're working on to you know create a much more stable base yeah that's a good question so uh let me answer this question and then i'll go back to the question that I did not answer i forgot about the lambert's problem how i ended up working on the ah. lambert's problem <laughs> um so uh definitely uh there are many ways of uh, creating forces on the vehicle um, so there are uh, the traditional ones uh, that, as you mentioned, there are thrusters. This is the easiest one that uh, one everybody understands. So you have this uh, action reaction, right? So you part the thrusters and you can move around. And if you want to keep your um, your position um, with respect to another object, you can do that. Uh, there are other ways of creating um, forces on the on the satellite. Uh, and uh, this depends in the environment that you are. So you try to take advantage of uh, of the environment. For example, if you're in a uh, if you're in low Earth orbit, there is a gravitational field. You can use the gravitational field uh, using some kind of uh, magneto uh, magneto. It's called magneto torques. Basically, they're coils. If you think about it, that interact with a magnetic field, so they generate a force, and then you can generate a magnetic uh, fork, torque 
uh, that you can uh, move the move the satellite around. There are some more interesting uh, recent techniques uh, using Coulomb friction, Coulomb sorry, Coulomb forces. So maybe you can, if you have small satellites, very small satellites, uh, that one is charging one uh, with positive electricity, the other one is negative. You can create these types of forces. So there are many, 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 many ideas. But but primarily, but these are for yeah for smaller ones. But for depth of applications that I just mentioned, the original ones for uh, orbiting on a spacecraft uh, with uh, robotic manipulators, primarily right now to move them around, uh, use uh, you use thrusters, which brings me to the like a nice segue about the Lambert's problem. Uh, thrusters uh, consume fuel or propellant, uh, if you wish. And of course, if you run out of fuel, uh, you're, you're out of luck uh, because uh, there is no gas station right now to stop and refuel yourself, at least not in the foreseeable future. Uh, but I was thinking at the time, <laughs> it was the same problem that when you do maneuvers in space and you use thrusters and you consume fuel, uh, you're trying to be careful how to, to, to use the fuel. So everything that you do in space is uh, somehow dictated by this constraint the constraint that you cannot uh, start burning fuel all the time. We don't have the force. We don't have the uh, uh, the engines right now to do what you see in Star Wars, right? Or the the, the spacecraft, <laughs> the Millennium Falcon fires the thrusters and goes, uh, right? Uh, so we what we do is basically we fire the thrusters momentarily to import an imp uh, an impulse and change this velocity, and then we let the laws of gravity of uh, of Kepler's laws, the Keplerian orbit, to follow. So most of the time, these spacecraft just fly by themselves without any forces mm. acting except the gravity, right? And whenever you want to do corrections, then you fire the thrusters. And again, this is because our technology hasn't reached you know that that level that will be able to have that. There are of course other forces, other other thrusters, uh, hole thrusters, they're called, uh, that pre that create uh, small ion thrusters. They create very small torques for all continuous the thrusting continuously, but they're creating very, very small, very, very small force, right? Uh, but uh, if you fire for, you know, for a year, even a small force or a very, very small G creates a large velocity if you compound it over time. So you can, this has been used in some applications, but uh, for uh, for that, if you want to build, to, to create large forces, momentarily you, you still use thrusters. So, uh, so to make a long story short, um, this is one of the primary concerns when you do operations in space, and this has to do either you have robots or you have uh, other satellites that have to move around and change orbit or orbits. You have to burn fuel. So, so the lumber problem came about because at the time I was a little bit frustrated by the fact that we don't have, uh, let's say, uh, gas stations in orbit to. To fuel satellites, and if you read that paper uh, that describes this um, lumber problem solution that we came up with, uh, the motivation for that is how to refuel a constellation of satellites. So, if you have a bunch of satellites and um, they're running out of fuel, and you want to refuel them because it's probably expensive to replace all of them, so the question is, uh, what is the best way to go around and refueling the satellites? So this is the motivation. I start looking at the problem of how do you go from one orbit to another orbit or from one location to another location within a fixed time period. So that's the Lambert's problem, basically. It's like you go to hit two points in space that one is in a, let's say, circular orbit to another point and another circular orbit, let's say two satellites, and you want to go from one to the other in a fixed amount of time. 
um, if you don't have um, if you don't have a the time element and you allow to move anytime you know anytime you want basically then you can do a Hohmann transfer for example and um, we know that um, and this is you go there but if you if somebody tells you reach that in one orbit or one orbit and you know and a half orbit or whatever so if you put a you put a time constraint and then this is what's called the Lambert's problem right it's a it's a few it's a, it's a transfer between two orbits in a fixed amount of time so anyway, this is how I got, uh, as you can see, how I got to 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 get in, involved with this Lambert problem, and we got some solutions to to solve the problem. And again, the reason is that if you have a, a large amount of satellites, you may not have a lot of time, and you want to constrain perhaps the flight, uh, the time of flight. If you have to, let's say, refuel, you know, 50 satellites or something like that, you may be restrained by the fact that you need to uh, allot uh, a specific amount of time to refueling a satellite. So that's a long answer to the question. <laughs> yeah, so so I'd like to uh, pick apart a little bit of additional context here. So um, you said if you don't care about uh, time constraints, then a Hohmann transfer is the best. Um, and so I, I think most of our... Fuel optimal, that's what it meant. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and I, I think all of our listeners are going to be familiar with uh, the way that a Hohmann transfer works. So we can skip talking about that. But you said um, multiple orbits. So the idea is you... Um, wait until the target that you're trying to rendezvous with lines up with the home and transfer that you would make. And so you, you wait for that. Uh, you kind of sit in like a phasing orbit, I guess. Uh, wait for everything to line up, do your home and transfer, and ta-da, you're there. So with that, with that as kind of our starting point, could you talk about why, uh, why a Lambert transfer allows you to be a little more disconnected from the time spent waiting for the orbits to line up? Well, I mean, if you're willing to burn a little bit more fuel to get there faster, you can you can do that type of orbit, right? The Lambert uh, solution to the problem, right? So you don't have to wait uh, because if it waits, you run out of time. Because if you, let's say if you're facing maneuver, if I tell you do that in, I don't know, what, two hours and... Uh, the right facing takes you know 50 hours then you'll not be able to do that uh for example you can you, do, you cannot wait right so you know we have to move so in this case that becomes a time constraint transfer uh, that's kind of what the lambert solution looks like um, now of course even for the lambert solution you can figure out and again this is in the paper if you read it uh if if uh, there are uh, there are cases that you may uh, want also to have a initial and a final facing as well uh, if you want to wait. And typically this facing is you wait, as you said, exactly the same as the Oman transfer. Just wait on your orbit, especially, or the other, or, or you wait for, or, or you, are, you arrive there early and then you, <laughs> and then you, mm. you wait there. For example, um, I tell you do this transfer in, I don't know, six hours, whatever that the number is. Oh, well, I can do it in five, so I can go there, there and I can stay there for the last and I coast with the, uh, with a target satellite for an hour. I mean, there are types of solutions that end up that that's the case, that you can go there even earlier and then you just coast uh, with a satellite. Um, so there are, um, the problem there, if I remember, was the computing these Lambert solutions is actually was a little bit complicated numerically. It's not like as elegant as the Oman transfer. There's a closed form solution and you know everything nice and clean. There is a, there is a formula, but you get multiple solutions uh, depending depending if you if you do a, a couple of a couple of rounds in the transfer orbit so that's why I call multiple rev, uh, re, revolution um, lumber problem so you can actually get there but maybe you go a couple of rounds before you meet staying on your orbit go back and go back and then you meet and so there are many uh, it turns out that in order to come to compute 
um, um, you need to compute, uh, let's say, um, I mean, if you want to do five orbits, I think you have to compute uh, 11 solutions or something. I don't remember, it's mm-hmm. 2n plus 1, when n is the number of a revolution. So that means that you compute all the solutions, and then you figure out, okay, this is the cheapest one. You're always looking for the, the smallest delta v. Delta v is the change of the velocity, which corresponds to fuel, basically the cheapest in terms of fuel. And what we did in that paper was to show that there is no need to compute all uh, 2n plus 1, but you compute only 2, and from this 2, very quickly figure out which one is the best. So it was uh, reducing the computational complexity of the problem. I mean, that was the, um, the thing of that paper, uh, the Lambert solution. Yeah, and again, the the focus was, at the time, is I had... Um, and I had another paper uh, from another student of mine who looked at the architecture, and that uh, particular paper looked at a small part of the whole problem. And that was the architecture that I mentioned before. If you want to build an architecture of refueling satellites in space, how are you going to go about doing that? Is it uh, best to have, as we say, uh, as I mentioned, a, a gas station somewhere in orbit, and then the satellites go there and re- refuel and coming back? Or maybe there's a there's a fuel tank that goes around and fuels the satellites. I mean, what is the best? It's not clear because of the orbital mechanics. It's not clear that uh, the satellite, which is closer to me in terms of, let's say, radial distance or you or, or another distance, it is um, the the satellite that 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 is easier or better to go. That's because of the way the orbital mechanics work. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's counterintuitive. So uh, you can have cases that my radial distance, maybe let's say in the same orbit, well, 60 degrees apart, and maybe there's one satellite in front of me, 60 degrees, and then there's a satellite behind me, it's 60 degrees or minus 60 degrees. So both of them in terms of radial distance, sorry, uh, angular distance, uh, seem to be the same uh, distance from me, right? Uh, it's like uh, in a linear space, like I have a person which is 10 meters ahead of me and 10 meters behind me, you will say they have the same distance. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But in space, it doesn't work this way. If you want to go to the guy in front or the, uh, the satellite in the back, you may get different delta Vs. Uh, that complicates a little bit the things and makes it more interesting also. What was the like order of magnitude of like how many of these satellites would we be talking about when you were doing the solution? Or did you just leave it totally open where, you know, we're talking about... Uh, yeah, I, I, I left it totally, totally open. As, uh, okay. as, uh, as academicians, right, as people who work in academia, we let, uh, we, let, we let our imagination. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, that will work. Um, you can have tens, you can have hundreds, you can have thousands of satellites. But, but primarily these types of solutions will be useful when you have a large number of satellites and that's as mentioned in the paper we have like two or three i don't think it will matter that much uh, because then you can uh, probably have enough time to refuel but if you have let's say 50 and you want to refuel all of them in three orbits or something that means that the mm. time allotted to refuel each satellite is limited right uh, that's kind of what it, so it's it's primarily useful when you have time constraints and my in, in, at the time at least my uh, motivation was uh, this is probably going to happen if you have many satellites and you don't have enough time to allot to refueling of each satellite but you can imagine mm-hmm. cases that you want to i don't know go to another planet to save uh, some astronaut or something so the time constraint mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Uh, all right we have to we have to get there in uh, i don't know uh, 
um, one month as opposed to three months. Uh, mm -hmm. You can do that, of course, but of course you're going to pay the, the prices more fuel. Okay, um, but anyway, there are there are cases where you have time constraints, right? And you cannot wait for the right facing and all that stuff to to do a home and transfer, which is the cheapest, but also takes the longest. That's a problem. Uh, this is unfortunately for the listeners out there who like Star Wars, and my son loves Star Wars, and I love Star Wars. Uh, I still were not there. <laughs> <laughs> we to, to be able to to go from one uh, one uh, planet to another at will, we have to rely on the laws of physics and let Kepler or the Keplerian motion take us from one planet to the other. So it takes it's, it's free, but on the other hand, it takes time. I, I could stop me before I go off too far on Star Wars, but like I just want to point out <laughs> that Star Wars started out in this universe where they don't talk about fuel constraints at all. And no. to make the story interesting, um, in, in more recent stories, they've had to include fuel constraints more and more often. Really? Uh, uh -huh. You know, it really okay. goes to show that, mm. that, you know, reality is so much more interesting <laughs> than any mm -hmm. fiction we can come up with. Like you, these yeah. constraints are, are, they, they seem like it's a bad thing, but it, you know, in reality, like it's a problem to solve and it, you know, it can be super interesting. Probably, I mean, in this case, it's not chemical propulsion they have in these movies, right? It's some sure. kind of futuristic, yeah. I don't know, whatever, uh, radio, whatever, <laughs> uh, what kind of, uh, 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 propulsion system they have, but, um, uh, the fuel, of course, every, every, always you have issues with uh, with fuel, but uh, here we have our chemical uh, propulsion system is the most uh, the ones that we we use most in order to get uh, enough enough. Um, it's not the most efficient, but it's the one that gives uh, enough thrust to do these maneuvers uh, in space. So, yeah. Okay, so um, I want to talk about one way to visualize a, a Lambert transfer, and I've read some. Uh, um, some textbooks on mm -hmm. uh, orbital mechanics, and I, I am not at all confident that I have this down. Mm -hmm. So um, let me let me throw this out there, and you can tell me how how far off I am. So one of the basic ideas is that you have two orbits. Mm -hmm. You have your object in one orbit, and you want to get to a different orbit. And because we're talking about rendezvous, you can specifically say mm -hmm. uh, that you have two points. One point at which you um, do your your you enter a transfer orbit and then you have another orbit where you do another burn and you enter the target orbit yeah. mm -hmm. and the way that you calculate the conic section right because all, all of these orbits are all conic sections the way that you pick the specific conic section that you want to jump onto for that transfer is uh th there are an infinite number of of uh, parabolas or, or uh, ellipse uh, segments that will take you from uh, point one to point two. And uh, an interesting thing about Lambert uh, solutions is that every elliptical orbit has two foci. Um, one focus is always the center of the planet that you're orbiting. And the other one is sort of this empty focus that's out in space and doesn't have a real world corollary it's not represented by any object in space mm -hmm. and if you have these two points that you've picked out if you draw circles around each one those circles will intersect at one or two points whether uh the you know at, at exactly one radius size they'll intersect once and then any radius larger than that they'll intersect uh, at two points 
And to come up with um, this new conic section that you want to jump onto, all you have to do is draw two circles um, and you, you take one of the two intersection points and you just draw a new ellipse with one of those two intersection points as the empty focus. And so you can kind of think of all the possible parabola or all, all the possible ellipses that you can jump onto for this transfer mm-hmm. um, as being a, a function of the size of the radii of your circles. As you make them bigger, you get lot more and more eccentric ellipses. And as you make them smaller, you get less and less eccentric ellipses. When you make those radii as small as possible, um, so that you have one, uh, one intersection point. Is that, uh, is the, um, the ellipse defined by that empty focus? Uh, is that the same as a, as a Hohmann transfer? Hohmann transfer is a particular case when, uh, the transfer ellipse that you do is kind of tangent to the, uh, to the, to the beginning and the right. at the end. So the easiest way to to I think the easiest way to visualize is assuming that you have both uh, the original orbit and the final orbit as circles. I think the easiest thing to visualize. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, it becomes more complicated. So let's say that you have two circles, two um, two circles centered about um, about uh, as you said the first focal point. Let's say it's the sun, right? And you want to go from uh, the Earth to to Mars or something like that. So you have the inner circle mm-hmm. that is the Earth orbit, and you have an uh, an outer circle which is the Mars orbit, right? So and you want to find an ellipse that connect one point on the inner circle to another point on the outer circle. That makes far. And mm-hmm. uh, there is a, there is another foci focus uh, that defines an ellipse and is somewhere out there. It's not the sun, as you said, it's somewhere out there. And uh, this defines the second ellipse. So there is an ellipse that has a focus on on the sun uh, or the original uh, point and um, somewhere else is the other focus. And this, the way it is elongated, obviously, intersects Right, uh, this um, this circle because it's elongated. If you make it long enough, will uh, will intersect these two circles, both the first and the second. And the 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 part of the ellipse that starts from one point of the inner circle to the part that goes to the other circle is the transfer orbit. So basically, you uh, uh, when you are at the, at the initial point, the inner circle, you do some kind of transfer. And the transfer, what you do there, and maybe I just try to explain what what is what is uh, this delta v? What is what what does it do? Uh, what it, what it does is that at this location, which is let's say uh, at, at the distance, uh, the inner distance of the of the radius, whatever it is, for distance, let's say if you're in the Earth orbit, it will be the distance from the Earth to the Sun, right? You change your velocity, so you have the same potential energy as you had before because you're in the same location but by increasing your velocity now your total velocity so your total energy is larger right because you changed your kinetic energy so you increase your velocity uh, your your potential velocity is the same because your distance from the sun is the same and then this changes the orbit because every orbit is determined by the energy you have so therefore you get into a different orbit and that's all you do and then you let it go right so you don't burn initially you don't burn continuously you're just changing momentarily the velocity and then you let it go and there is uh, this new energy you have will determine this elliptic orbit that you have calculated if you do it correctly it's going to follow because of a Kepler law uh, this particular elliptic orbit that will intersect the outer circle the, the the orbit of mars let's say okay and then this is and then you follow that and they can uh you can get there now it turns out that uh, for uh for the lambert solution um 
so you can there are many as you have the many solutions right now if i tell you however i want to do this transfer but i want this transfer to take i don't know 50 days or whatever the number is right uh, or a month or whatever uh, then that creates an extra constraint that eliminates most of the solutions because uh, yes they intersect but they don't intersect at the right time right <laughs> you can follow so there are, it turns out there are only two solutions that uh, is called the long path and the uh, two, the two ellipses basically that will get you there uh, at the um, at the same time um, and you have to figure out which one is the best um, that's actually that's one part of the the work that we did uh, one thing that i want to mention is that uh, this because turns out uh, is, related, is related to the question of facing so the lumber problem just solves the problem how to go from one point in one orbit to another point in another orbit in a in a given amount of time a rendezvous is a little bit more different because it's not enough to enter the orbit of mars and get to mars orbit uh, possibly you want to get to the orbit of Mars because you want to meet Mars. So you better make sure that Mars is there when you enter their orbit. So that requires a little bit of the facing that you have to start. I mean, you have to time it properly, such when at the end of the maneuver, right, <laughs> at the end of this, then uh, at the location that you are on the orbit, Mars is also at this location as well and not somewhere else on the orbit. You see what I'm saying? So that's kind of the the timing, the facing is you have to wait uh, a little bit to do the to do this transfer such that um that's that um it may it may happen. I mean we may you may want to do that depending on the time you have. Um so yeah that's the that's kind of in a nutshell uh what the um what the Landberg solution is again it's a, a way of calculating it's, it's an application of of um this conic solutions uh, to to a problem which has a a fixed amount of of time to com to to be computed. So rendezvous is really interesting because you b because you have to be concerned about where your target is Correct. and your target is always moving. It that it, the time of flight of your transfer orbit also has to match the time of flight of or you know has to correlate yeah, to the yeah. time of flight of your target. Is that something that can be integrated into Lambert's original equations or do we have to do additional math to add that relationship? It is a little bit requires a little bit more. I mean, uh, a little bit more computations. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, the original Lambert's problem was not a rendezvous problem between two two points in, in 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 orbits. It was just going from one orbit to the other. And as you said, if you if you if you want to meet someone in that particular orbit, that means then then there you have to time it because it's like hitting a moving target. So so, but it doesn't require too much work. It's just a matter of keeping time of where this you know um satellite or where this planet is and time it properly uh, such that um you when you reach that location on the outer orbit let's say the sat is there it's just a matter of bookkeeping so it's not that much complicated uh, if you think about it at least for the uh, at least for circular orbits it's pretty straightforward right because you just you can uh, you can you know how fast it goes around the orbit and you just uh, factor that in Okay, so so when you get there, to make sure that um, uh, the, the 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 planet is there as well, right? Yeah, it's not that much complicated, but it requires a little bit more work. Again, the original uh, formulation did not specifically specify a particular target. So if you see again, if you look at look at that paper, so we had this facing uh, terminal. We call it the initial uh, coasting and the final coasting periods. Uh, that basically the, do exactly what you just mentioned. So either you wait a little bit on your own orbit uh, until you get the facing right, 
and uh, then you just follow this uh, this transfer orbit and you and you're done or depending on the time if you perhaps gave me mo more time that i needed you may have a final <laughs> a final um, coasting period where you get there you meet and then you just you know just coasting with a to uh, along with the target until you the time the clock runs out basically that's but it's not that complicated right so the the multi-orbit part in, in this paper is is including waiting for that opportunity to pop up how much worse does it get if you include the possibility of spending more than an or more than one orbit in your transfer orbit does that make things easier or harder um, make sure that I, um, I want to correct something here. So the the original coasting that I mentioned, the final coasting, are, the, uh, are part of the original uh, orbit and the final orbit. The multi-revolution, uh, Lambert uh, refers to the doing multiple revolution on the transfer orbit, not on the initial or the final. Okay, so you may have oh, actually okay. right. Yeah. So that means that um, you go there, but you you just keep going, make two turns before you stop. Basically, that's the multi-revolution -revol and um, uh, transfer transfer orbit. Of course. And again, why you want to have multi revolution Because for some reason, perhaps you know you you, you have you want more more time uh, to to do that. So I mean, maybe you want to reach there, and you okay. Well, you keep you keep making circles uh, before you meet. I don't know why. Uh, just a matter of um, it's a theoretical problem, maybe because you 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 have more time and you can spend time, and you're just going around this transfer orbit. That, so the, anyway, that's a, that's an addition to the original original. Um, coasting and the final coasting all right so you you that was uh, that was just to clarify that then you what was your question again my question was that does that make it harder or easier and obviously since it resulted in a paper it makes it harder yeah it is harder there was a result before that that again uh, again theoretically speaking if you if I, I want to solve the problem the theory the theory wants to solve uh, should, should be hold for any uh, for any time right um, and uh, so for for a very large times you may have to do multiple revolutions right that's all it says and again at the time was if you um, allow to do up to five revolutions and you say okay what's the best uh, what's the best uh, solution for five revolutions then in order to do that you have to compute 11 i think two 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 times two n times plus one so you have to compute 11 solutions and then you figure out which is the best uh, what we did is trying to avoid that and make it more computationally a little bit uh, easier to solve. So we just uh, check two solutions to get out which one is the best, um, even if you have a multi-revolution problem. So even if these are more difficult to calculate, would you say that these are much more practical because I'm assuming that they use less energy? Like this is something that you would put into practice because I don't know how often this particular type of orbital mm. transfer happened. And that's just because, you know, mm. we don't have that kind of delta V. Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I cannot think of... a application but uh, i'm not uh, i don't follow very very much the uh, everything that's going in the orbital mechanics but i don't um, i don't know if where they have been used this this transfers i'll be curious to know it's a good question maybe i should <laughs> i should know more so that will be uh, an interesting case where um that for practice, I guess your question is that in, in terms of practice is that something that could be used for some problem right now i cannot give you a good answer. I'm not familiar with that particular type of application. It would just uh, people, um, you know, in universities and study problems, um, try to solve the problems, I'm not necessarily thinking always about the particular application, just uh, we like to have the answer to this problem. And 
maybe maybe will be useful i'm not sure right now i don't have any good answer for that unfortunately but do i have it right that at least it like if you're talking about something that makes like multiple revolutions then that's something that would use less energies and so yeah yeah typically uh, yeah exactly yeah typically something that has uh, the more time mm, in, yeah. all the, in all these problems as a, as a rule of thumb the more you wait the less fuel you 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 consume right so that would be a problem because yeah why you want to do it well because you're going to spend less fuel right that's that's the so you have to wait that's the price to pay it's a compromise um and between uh fuel consumption and time so that's what it is and again if you had an unlimited amount of fuel and you don't have to follow these trajectories that means you can just drive there right you don't have to take the keplerian highway uh then uh then you don't really need any of that stuff you just mm -hmm. just drive in a straight line right uh, but unfortunately again our our state of technology right now it's not maybe a uh, hundred to hundred years from now we don't really need any of that stuff because just um, just drive there in a straight line yeah need a torch drive that's another science <laughs> science fiction trope <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's how this thing started recently uh we this is the work that as i mentioned i did in the lab um, almost uh, almost 20 years ago now so we are primarily interested uh, in orbital mechanics or trajectories not of of the nature of going from one planet to the other it's primarily uh, to support uh, again proximity operations in orbit let's say in all of orbit when i discussed earlier today about uh, satellite being in the proximity or the vicinity of another satellite trying to dock or trying to manipulate do some manipulation what have you so uh, these are interesting uh, extensions of the classical orbital mechanics and uh, they have been very popular in the last 15 years or so uh, under the term of uh, for formation flying you want to have two satellites flying close to one another for long periods of time and again the question there is that if they're not exactly on the same orbit they're a little bit away from one another even a couple of meters will make a difference over mm -hmm. long periods of time they start drifting right unless uh unless they are exactly in the same uh, radius uh, if their radius is a little bit different uh, then they have different velocities and if you're like a little bit below you're going to go faster if you're a little bit higher you're going to go slower so and that's uh, the way actually to 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 meet with other satellites you don't i think i may have mentioned uh, last time uh, that some of these orbital uh, maneuvers is a little bit counterintuitive uh, because if you're behind and uh, you want to catch up with someone uh, if you start you know let, let's say put the thrust down or you put your pedal down and try to accelerate uh, what's going to happen uh, you're going to get more velocity that's going to raise your orbit and that means that you're going to slow down and the mm. other guy's going to pass you so it's a little bit funny uh, and vice versa if you are if you want to catch up with someone it's ahead of you it's better to to lower your orbit a little bit which means that you slow down but then you get a shortcut and then you intercept him um, anyway there are a couple of um, peculiarities like that so just going back to the formation flying the question is that is it possible to have two satellites that the drone drift apart even for long periods of time and that's kind of we're trying to find interesting orbits that you can uh, set them uh, such that uh, the satellites will kind of remain more or less stationary or you're going to require very few delta v corrections in order to remain in the vicinity because if you start um, burning fuel to maintain your distance uh, from the other satellite then after a while you're again you burn you burn all your fuel and that's that's not good um, so 
So that part of uh, the um, orbital mechanics uh, we're still looking at, uh, but uh, primarily our focus is uh, maneuvers are very close, to, uh, like in the last uh, five, you know, five to three meters, when you can actually do some kind of manipulation. That's where we're focusing these days, doing uh, image processing, having a camera or uh, maybe some other radio link or laser finder or what have you. Uh, observe the target satellite, figure out if it's antenna is broken or what have you, and then uh, maybe try to go close, replace the antenna or do this type of proximity operation without colliding with the other satellite. I, hmm. I would love to hear more about uh, about how you how orbital dynamics comes into play when you're doing proximity operations. Like I'm just thinking about um, in Gemini, uh, who was it? Was it uh, mm -hmm. Borman and Lovell had so much trouble actually doing, uh, you know, the, the final leg of rendezvous because it's so counterintuitive. Um, so we, when you're doing really close proximity operations within, you know, tens of, of meters, as long as we're excluding the idea of finding an orbit where you don't have to do very much work to maintain station, um, how much do you have to think about the orbital dynamics? Can you just collapse the problem down to, you know, a, a regular sixed off, there, there, I'm here, let me thrust in that direction? Or do you have to keep in mind? Uh, depends. Well, you, yeah, well, yeah. No, I think you always have to keep in mind the orbital mechanics. I mean, maybe in the last couple of meters or because mm -hmm. the, 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 the times are not um, right. long. So if you're like the last minute, you just, okay, go there and, and dock. But uh, even at the distance of, uh, you know, 100 meters, 50 meters, uh, if you're moving slowly again, because this takes longer periods of time, you just don't go there. You just let it drift and approach it slowly. It may take several several minutes mm -hmm. or hours to do the last. And uh, when you when this drift turns, because you may be in a slightly different orbit, have a little bit different velocity, accumulate and they will drift you apart. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I mean, if you want to feel uh, how difficult it is to dock, <laughs> there is actually an app. Mm. If you can actually download it and play with yourself, you, you'll be surprised how difficult <laughs> it is. I don't remember what it is called, the docking with Soyuz or something like that. So you imagine it's kind of like a 3D representation. You are in this and you're approaching to dock with the uh, ISS to get to the docking station and you see how difficult it is to get it right. Yeah, it yeah. looks like there's a few of these out there. Wow. <laughs> there's one called manual docking. That might be it. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, so which regime are, are you working on the most? The The hundreds of meters? or the you know five meters kind of uh rendezvous uh, right now we are uh, we're primarily um we have two projects actually right now and this change uh, we have one uh project in terms of perception only which is mainly uh determine um and that may be of interest to you actually um uh, determine the location of the satellite with respect to um and in this case an asteroid um, so um, you want to approach an asteroid, it's a NASA project, you want to approach um, an asteroid and you want to figure out where your relative orientation with the asteroid and you want to take pictures. And based on the picture, you have to figure out where there are craters or maybe a good place to, to land on the asteroid or what have you. 
and uh, let's say that um, because you're far away, these asteroids are far away, it's very difficult to do it remotely control, remote control, and you have to have some levels of autonomy. So right now, of course, everything is pretty well uh, orchestrated uh, by the ground station. They give precise commands. Uh, the satellite does something, take pictures, send it back after I don't know how many minutes or hours. You look at the pictures, you say, okay, do that. You upload, take you know several hours. Does and it's not it's not real time, and it's a uh, very uh, uh, very time-consuming, and if something goes wrong, it's very difficult to fix it. You have to wait after the fact and see what happened, right? Because you cannot intervene. So there is a, an, uh, an urgency, uh, if you wish, to include more autonomous operations on the spacecraft, so they have a little bit more flexibility. Uh, they can observe and they can figure out and maybe decide on their own uh, to a certain extent. So one of the work we're doing, and this is uh, the order of maybe several kilometers uh, away from the satellite, so you can see the satellite from, sorry, the, the asteroid from far away. Uh, you can take pictures and you can reconstruct uh, by taking successive pictures. You can reconstruct the satellite, the, sorry, the, the asteroid, and maybe you can uh, understand its shape. Uh, you can figure out how heavy it is. Um, and so you can determine the gravitational field and do stuff like that. And you can actually... Uh, uh, do a lot of the things that typically are done on the ground, uh, do it on board the satellite. So that's one uh, level, and this is of order of, uh, as I mentioned, uh, kilometers probably, uh, that we do this perception part, and we can actually do very accurate uh, determination of the orbit and reconstruction of uh, the relative orientation or the relative position of the orbiting satellite with respect to asteroid uh, uh, using just cameras. It's pretty, it's pretty cool, actually, the theory. Um, the other one is... Um, very close. The other one is like a few meters. Uh, it's probably the manipulation part that I mentioned before. When you have a satellite, a robotic flying flying robot, maybe a flying manipulator, orbiting manipulator that is very close and is doing some maneuver. And there, primarily, uh, we're interested in how the how she control the movement of the robotic arm, such that I would be able the end effect, or I would say the tip of the robot, the hand of the robot, to be where I want to be in space. And why this is uh, challenging is because what I mentioned the early in today is because if the, if the base is moving and you don't want to keep the base stationary by firing thrusters to create the counter forces, right, to keep it stationary, uh, typically because of the conservation of the angular momentum, if, if you move your, if you move the, uh, the robot arm, the whole thing is moving, including the base. So you may want to reach something, but you will not be able to reach it because either your base moved, right? So the, the motion of the base and the motion of the end effector have to be coordinated. So this is the types of scenarios that we we're looking uh, right now. Uh, hopefully soon we'll get to, to contact effects and maybe have two, two of them together, maybe uh, two satellites or two orbits, two, sorry, two, uh, two um, robotic arms um, manipulating the same object that's probably down the, down the line. So this is the two extremes that we're looking right now. One is primarily in the area of uh, perception and 3D reconstruction, and this is at the kilometer distance uh, range, and the other one is... Uh, more at controls and that's uh, at the few meters i would say using vision systems at a kilometer is kind of crazy <laughs> yeah that's uh that's pretty intense yeah this is uh hmm. um 
I think the you get pictures and you can actually uh, at least figure out the shape of the of the of the asteroid. You can have I mean depends also the focal the focal the focal focal length and the field of view of these cameras, but you can get a lot of information about. Uh, about the shape of the asteroid if you want to do a 3D reconstruction. If you want to look mostly at uh, this, the surface and things like that, then you have to go a little bit closer. But yeah, these are high resolution cameras and you can do pretty pretty good pretty good things even from at that distance. What uh, people do these days actually, and um, if you're interested in following this literature, uh, you can have these cameras uh, following the satellite as approaches uh, the asteroid or the planet, and as it tri tries to land, uh, for example, I think there is uh, some elements that the next uh, mission to Mars will have some uh, some of these elements where you keep track and you you uh, you, you look at the terrain. So the satellite could be autonomously um, move away and re uh, recompute the trajectory, the landing trajectory, if it sees that the way it was going maybe hit a rock, right? So now you have a camera and you can see, oh, where I was planning to land is not a good landing place because there's this big rock there and I may hit the rock. So automatically can do a divert, automatic divert the trajectory and start looking, looking around with the camera and do some um, image processing techniques and you can figure out uh, where is the smooth terrain so I can land. Mm -hmm. You can do uh, you can do things like that. Hmm. Yeah. Isn't that what um Hayabusa too did? Like their kind of big yeah. thing where they were actually able to navigate the much chunkier <laughs> terrain on that asteroid. Yeah, Hayabusa actually is one of the cases that we're using to do the reconstruction. Um for the but I think all this uh, asteroid uh, it was primarily uh, everything is coordinated by the ground. Right, so you take pictures. I mean, they take pictures. They do the reconstruction. They send it to Earth. The reconstruction is done on the Earth. Um, I think the the primary uh, technique is called stereophotoclinometry, I believe, uh, where basically you take all these pictures and you put them put them together and you create a three D representation. And you can do the three D. You have seen these videos, right? You have the three D representation of the of the satellite based on the images that were collected mm. from the satellite. But this is done on the Earth and may take yeah, several days actually to do it. So the challenge here for that project was: can we do that on board the satellite? That was the challenge, right? To can do. Uh, of course, probably you, you don't have the power to do uh, SPC, uh, stereo photoclinometry, on board the satellite, at least right now. It's computationally intensive, uh, but maybe you can do something else. But this is the same idea, to alleviate some of the work that is done on the ground and put it on board the spacecraft. So the spacecraft now has already, uh, while it's at you know, Hayabusa, right, on this asteroid, whatever it is, Bennu, these days, to recreate the satellite and then can uh, see uh, the surface and they can decide uh, perhaps autonomously or semi-autonomously uh, what are good places to land and, and things like that. Yeah, so, so Panos, if we could maybe just move things a bit more academic for a moment, just because it kind of, you know, was something I was thinking of is, does this mean essentially that every non-Holman transfer is a Lambert transfer? Every non-Holman transfer is a Lambert transfer. Uh, I mean, the Lambert transfer, again, has the element of, uh, if, if you give me a time constraint, then yes, it's a, if it's a time constraint transfer between two points, this is called a, a Lambert transfer. Mm. If you don't give me the time and say, I want to go, uh, between two locations, and I don't really care. Um, you can here's a, here's an example, right? So if you don't give me the time constraint, but you give me a fuel mm. constraint, because otherwise you get many solutions, uh, then that's not necessarily mm -hmm. a Lambert transfer because it's uh, it doesn't have the, the the constraint of the time. So if if the time is given, uh, then that will be the solution. Now all of them are elliptical orbits. It's just a matter of 
uh, how you can you get the solution. It doesn't mean that it is uh, it's a different type of orbit, right? All of them are elliptical orbits. <laughs> it's just the type of solution is the Lambert problem is not the uh, is not the uh, different orbit. Is the, is the problem? It is the, the formulation of the problem leads to that solution, right? That's actually a really good point. Uh, you could have a transfer that is not described by the Lambert solutions if you include uh, parabolic or hyperbolic uh, transfer ah. orbits, right? Because Lambert can't calculate those. Is that is that right? Uh, the Lambert I know, the solutions uh, I'm familiar with is primarily between uh, elliptical, uh, the elliptical orbits. Um, there yeah. may be extensions mm -hmm. um, to that, and I don't, I don't see why not. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if nobody had actually done that work uh, because it seems absolutely crazy uh, to transfer between two orbits in a sing around a single parent body and to hit a parabolic or hyperbolic trajectory yeah. <laughs> uh, you that's extreme time limitations right there <laughs> sure sure well, well i'm certainly looking forward to you know the cost of space flight and the amount of infrastructure and things on orbit that we have out there that lambert you know, transfers become a more common, you know, I want them to be mainstream, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to that time. <laughs> there are, yeah, there is a whole uh, in the, uh, uh, in the community, uh, there is a whole uh, group of people who look at the space infrastructure. So they're looking at uh, things like that, how to develop in, uh, constellations and on other thing, on things mm -hmm. of that nature. Uh, there are some uh, studies and actually uh, there may be, uh, I think there are at least a few studies where uh, they described how you do refueling of satellite constellation, including one of my one of my previous PhD students. And and again, uh, most of the times, if you have a uh, if you give a lot of time for refueling, and most of the times this is the case, then you just go from one satellite to another satellite using uh, Hohmann transfers. You don't burn your fuel, burn fuel. But in cases that you want to restrict the time of refueling, let's say I don't have like one month to refuel all the satellites, but I have only th three weeks or whatever, two weeks, then you may need to, to do something a little bit different than just uh, pure Hohmann transfers. Uh, depending, of course, on the orbit, right? Uh, because uh, uh, this could be very, uh, very long uh, but uh, for these types of um, low Earth orbit, even Hohmann transfer doesn't seem to be taking that long. But uh, for very long, you know, Hohmann transfers to go from uh, the Earth to to Mars, uh, they're they're very long transfers right. take too long, right? So again, it's a it's a compromise to be made, and the tools are there. Uh, I think the theory is there, and just how to use them. It's up to the application, particular application. You know, it's weird. I I totally think that I came away from this understanding this problem a lot better. Um, like I, I think mm. you, I think you really did oh, I'm help. Glad. Okay, uh, honest. <laughs> this is this has been great. See, this this is why practical application is always better than just abstract problems. That, that's that's <laughs> yep. that's the path that leads to understanding. Uh, fascinating as always. Thank you again for your time. I'm I'm glad that we were able to to pull you in to teach us a little bit here. All right. Thank you very much. All right, this week in spaceflight history, uh, this week we just have two winners, Kyle Foster and the Greek. Andy, Clue was like a Mayatnik. 
So what does Mayatnik mean? And I guess that will tell us what maybe the event is. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so you're going to tell us what that's all about, Dennis. So yeah, tell us about the Mayatnik. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm so happy uh, last week that you repeated it because my pronunciation was awful and might have made it the clue unguessable. But mercifully, you <laughs> said it and enunciated it much more accurately. And so <laughs> I appreciate that. But right. So so this event was uh, the first of February 1990, and it was the first test of the Soviet SPK or 21KS maneuvering unit. And so this is a, uh, a unit that is, uh, well, uh, how about you go for uh, this one as well? Because I could I could attempt it, but um, I think you could do just a much better job, David, uh, for what the SPK stands for. So my best attempt, Yeah, that is that is hard to say. Russian. Sir, wow. What a language. Ah, it's beautiful. Yeah. No. And so, and this, this, you know, translates to the uh, cosmonaut maneuvering equipment. Uh, it also has a couple uh, nicknames. Uh, one that, you know, uh, was, I think, more common to the cosmonauts themselves uh, was uh, Ikar, which uh, was Icarus, essentially. And so um, interesting branding choice given what happened to Icarus, but, you know, it was allowing, you know, people to essentially maneuver around space. So, you know, I guess that's where the logic behind that came. But it was also known uh, more informally as the flying armchair, given essentially uh, what the thing looks like. And so um, if you're familiar with the uh, the man maneuvering unit uh, from the 80s, so this is not the, you know, the EMUs that astronauts, you know, uh, are using nowadays, but uh, this is, you know, the, the infamous, uh, not infamous, but just famous uh, Bruce McCandless, you know, kind of floating around by himself in the depth of space. So um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the details of the uh, uh, SPK or 21KS uh, unit, um, but just maybe to give a little bit of a, you know, a breakdown of, you know, when this, this test happened. The test was conducted by uh, Alexander Serebrov, who, you know, was a, a cosmonaut who had, you know, a very long, luscious career. Uh, he had uh, four uh, space missions, uh, two short duration ones to uh, Salyut 7 and two longer ones to Mir. And so uh, this test took place during a Mir operation and uh, a Mir mission and in particular uh, Mir uh, EO5. And so the the main goal of this uh, mission in particular was to attach the uh, the Kvant 2 uh, module to the station. And so this was, you know, uh, a module that had, you know, uh, an airlock and, you know, a number of other kind of uh, things going on, but to kind of, you know, move along a little bit because, you know, I really want to talk about the, the you know, the, the, the maneuvering unit in particular, since that's, you know, this test is what you know, this week in spaceflight history is all about. Serebrov was uh, the crew along with uh, Alexander uh, Viktorenko, and they ultimately both got to wear the, um, uh, the SPK uh, unit for uh it's only two uh times that it was actually you know used and um they were on station for 166 days so that's what i mean by you know a longer duration state of mir and so we're talking about you know essentially you know, better part of you know almost half a year the station had been uninhabited for the previous five months before they got there which you know i always think is a little spooky but you know that happens they had a, a bunch of evas that they did in in a pretty you know uh, tight window. Um, and so the, the first uh, EVA was uh, about uh, installing star trackers and sensors onto uh, Kavant 1, uh, which was essentially postponed from a previous expedition. So this one wasn't necessarily, um, you know, related so much to the main goals of this, uh, this Mir uh, expedition. Uh, and then the second EV that the second EVA, though, is when things really kind of like, you know, started to happen. So they retrieved an experiment uh, that was outside the station that was uh, 
placed by a French astronaut, uh, Jean-Luc Chrétien, and um, also installed some new, you know, uh, exposure to space experiments. Um, and it was actually the last time that they, you know, at this point, because uh, uh, Cavant wasn't quite ready for business, um, was the last time that they used a uh, the docking node uh, hatch for an EVA. And so now they were going to straight up go to the proper kind of, you know, airlock for uh, their hatch from uh, Kavant 2. And so uh, the third EVA was the, the first time using Kavant 2's uh, airlock. And so um, this one was kind of setting the stage for the, uh, the uh, SPK test. They essentially had um, a, a new uh, add-on package to their suits um, with, you know, different power, telemetry, and cooling that essentially uh, left the uh, umbilicals that they used to have to uh, where uh, obsolete. And so uh, these are the Orlon suits, uh, and this uh, upgraded uh, kind of version was the uh, Orlon DMA ones. For anybody who's a fan of uh, space engineers, uh, I don't know if you've noticed already, but I didn't realize that the helmets in Space Engineers, the uh, computer game, uh, those are the Orlon helmets, essentially. Like, they mm. <laughs> look exactly like it. If you do a Google search, you can <laughs> verify this yourself. You know, in this third EVA, they, they departed through Kavantu's airlock for the first time, and um, it was a larger hatch. So we're talking uh, one meter versus uh, four-fifths of a meter, which was the size of the docking hatches that they'd used previously on Mir. And the kind of uh, big thing, in addition to testing the new, you know, Orlan DMA suits, was to attach a mooring post outside of Kvach 2, kind of near the, uh, the, 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 the hatch, specifically because that mooring post is where uh, a tether would be installed for the test uh, on the next uh, EVA. And so the next EVA was the, you know, the test of this suit, the SPK. And so this took place again on uh, the 1st of February, uh, 1990. And so uh, the SPK uh, is, is a 218 kilogram, you know, piece of equipment. And it arrived on board uh, on Kavant 2 when that worked its way to the station, uh, to Mir, while the cosmonauts were already there. They, you know, were waiting for Kavant 2 to arrive along with the suit. If you're familiar with the, uh, the MMU, uh, suits that, you know, NASA used again in, in, in the 80s. It's a similar look, but essentially you can imagine this, you know, uh, gigantic uh, backpack, right? Um, that's, you know, much larger than any, you know, kind of realistic black uh, backpack that you would, you know, typically wear. And then, you know, it's got a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a harness that'll kind of, you know, uh, lock in a position around your waist. Um, and then you've got uh, the reason why it's called the flying armchair is, you know, you've got these two armrest looking things that come out of the two sides and then they have controls at the end. And what I think is so cool about this is that the controls are not just, you know, uh, there are, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of joystick looking, you know, uh, 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 handle uh controls that you can you know use for you know maneuvering itself but there's also like you know a bunch of switches and everything else uh, happening there so there's there's quite a bit to it each of these you know at the end of each of these armrests right you've, you've not only got the controls for you know uh maneuvering but you also have a a number of switches looks like at least half a dozen on each uh side and then you've got a couple um you know dials so so it really is you know a, a nice little uh maneuvering system uh ultimately this is a descendant and, you know, I, I could be um, off a little bit here. Uh, it, it seems to be a rather complicated heritage. But from what I understand, based on my research, is that uh, going back to the 60s, um, there was, you know, the idea of uh, a UMK or UPMK uh, sort of maneuvering unit for cosmonauts to 
to use. I've seen these uh, translated as cosmonaut, transference, and maneuvering units. Some of the initial ones had a very interesting look. If you imagine a giant horseshoe and you essentially, uh, you know, were, you know, like a horseshoe magnet kind of looking thing, right? So a giant horseshoe and you basically have the astronaut go, you know, into it so that the two ends of the horseshoe are pointed, you know, uh, away from their back and they basically have this thing kind of wrapped around their waist and so that's kind of how they would mm -hmm. harness into there and then you would have essentially the propulsion uh directly behind i don't know their lumbar spine kind of like down there uh ultimately though at some point between the 60s and you know 1990 um you know this had the spk specifically uh was uh you know designed uh with the more kind of look that's modeled on the mmu um and so it was designed by uh zvezda the company and uh energia the um uh, again, the company, not the rocket and not the module, hmm. um, or I guess module and rocket, <laughs> respectively. <laughs> um, these pop up more than once. And, you know, it was planned, you know, uh, the UMK or UPMK, the, the kind of forerunner, uh, was just, you know, more generally planned for any kind of, you know, uh, space station maneuverability, uh, proximity operations around there, have an uh, cosmonauts be able to maneuver and move around. Uh, but the SPK uh, seemed to be used uh, or designed principally for uh, uh, Buran missions, uh, right? So the uh, the Soviet shuttle that, you know, uh, looked like, you know, a uh, space shuttle copy, essentially. What's What's interesting is the SPK that we have today, just talking about the form factor, uh, it, it looks like the exact opposite of a horseshoe where the bottom of the U is at your belly and the legs of the U are sticking out behind you because, um, the Orlon spacesuit has got, um, basically a door in the back and you open the door and step inside and close the door behind you. And mm -hmm. it looks like that door is integrated with the jetpack. It's, it's not like you could take this off during flight. It, it looks like it's actually like, you were talking about how you don't need during these flights, they didn't need umbilicals back to the station. So it looks like all of the life support is all integrated uh, in the backpack. And because that interface is, you know, the size of a small door on your back, it, it seems kind of ridiculous to think about having a, a unit that you could back out of. D did you see anything about that in, in your research? Do you know how uh, how well integrated these two units are. So here's here's a top-down view, essentially, of integrating uh, the cosmonaut into the attachment. And it's got the little, um, you know, I mean, it's labeled kind of the key components there. Um, I mean, it, it, it does, I don't know about how much of an integration there is there, because between that and the other figures, they don't seem to talk about kind of umbilicals between the unit and the spacesuit or anything like that. Um, rather than just kind of locking and loading you into place there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting that the frame that goes around your waist is there at all if there is a mechanical connection between mm -hmm. the suit, the back of the suit and the unit. Um, it doesn't seem like that really adds too much. I, I, I guess it might even be more strain relief than anything. I was going to say, other than, I mean, not, without knowing it, uh, it, it is the point of contact for the tether, but that's kind of, I guess, the main mm. thing. Also, and I mean, you know, also kind of uh, holds you in place. You know, I mean, like you can, right, you can have it where you're like a Lego piece, I guess, and the back of the spacesuit connects to the uh, the mobility unit that way, or you can have it so that it kind of 
you buckle in like you're on a uh, you know a roller coaster. So um, the suit you know had uh, uh, you know to be able to maneuver it had uh, 32 oxygen driven thrusters uh, as opposed to the MMU used nitrogen for comparison um, that were arranged in four units essentially at the four corners of the uh, uh, backpack behind you and uh, it had two modes uh, economical and forced. In the economical mode, you know, you would essentially have one second translation bursts with uh, three degrees per second rotation until, um, you know, when you, you know, translate it with the one handle until you moved it to a neutral position. And so it kind of, you know, it, it's, you know, it reminds me of like, you know, how they would maneuver some of the different uh, modes on uh, Mercury and Gemini. You know what I mean? You have, you know, fly by wire versus, you know, free versus like some other uh, types like that. And so economical essentially was, you know, um, much uh, less uh, intense, I guess, uh, translation rotation. And then for the forced mode, uh, you would do a four second burst at a time and an eight degree per second rotation instead, essentially. And so that was when you really wanted to zoot around uh, uh, while you were outside the station. Ultimately, though, when you weren't actually, you know, using the controls to maneuver, uh, you had an automatic attitude hold with about uh, plus or minus two degree accuracy. And so, you you know, the space uh you know the suit the maneuvering unit had um you know uh sensors in their uh movement control unit that would be able to essentially you know uh, recognize this orientation and try to hold things uh steady for you sarah Broth had trained for years on a computer sim before this test uh like i said that previous eva they attached a a mooring post uh on which you know uh, ultimately there would be uh, an electric winch with a tether, a 60 meter long or 197 foot tether, um, that would basically, uh, you know, keep the uh, the cosmonaut safe during this whole, you know, uh, test procedure. It would automatically take up slack, so there wouldn't be, you know, any, you know, you wouldn't want a risk of, you know, things uh, getting wrapped up or uh, getting knotty or trapped in the tether. Uh, very crucially, you know, this, you know, the station could not, Mir could not maneuver. Uh, to the cosmonaut in the event of a failure. And so Sarabrov would be, you know, in trouble if the, something malfunctioned on the suit and he wasn't able to uh, get back there himself. You know what I mean? Uh, you, you could not maneuver uh, 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 Mir to go and essentially rescue him. The, you know, the kind of strap-on part, the harness that would kind of go around your waist to uh, 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 connect, uh, hold the, you know, uh, hold Sarabrov in is where the, uh, the tether was connected. So it's basically kind of right below, you know, uh, his belly button, essentially. Uh, you know, what was the test? Uh, it was uh, three short flights uh, to about five, uh, about five meters or 16 feet away, uh, kind of maneuvered away, came back, maneuvered away, came back. And then on uh, the fourth time, it was like, all right, let's, let's really kick things up a notch and went out to 33 meters um, from uh, Mir, which was, uh, which is about 110 feet away. Uh, but at this point, though, on the return, uh, Serebrov noticed that he was coming back slightly off course. And so herein lies the clue. Uh, during his correction, you know, the suit uh, performed nominally and everything was good, except the tether, right? Because keep in mind, right, the tether uh, is constantly taking up slack uh, to keep things as taut as it could be, uh, resulted in him uh, flipping backwards and then beginning to rock like a pendulum. Mm -hmm. And so the clue was uh, like a uh, Mayatnik, which is the uh, Russian way of saying pendulum. And so uh, that's the Russian word for pendulum. And so like a Mayatnik, like a pendulum. Thank you. So, I mean, it, you know, it, it, was a, it was an interesting test and had kind of, you know, a bit of a, you know, uh, 
an interesting event, uh, you know, that happened. You know, there there was a bit of excitement uh, while it happened, and so you know, Mercer, you know, good good news. I mean, everyone everything was safe. The test performed well, and uh, you know, Serebrov was you know a, a veteran, uh, you know, cosmonaut, and so uh, there was there's no problem there. And so ultimately, you know, there there was another uh, a fifth and final EVA on that particular expedition uh, where um, the SBK was used its second and final time um, by uh, Viktorenko. It was very. It wasn't very easy to operate or maneuver, Ben. Right? You've talked about how the uh, the Orlon suits are very uh, unpleasant and uh, uh, un kind of wheely to be uh, inside. And it sounds like this kind of you know translated also to the uh, maneuvering unit as well, where when you were inside there, it was uh, it just didn't re really work. And in any event, you know. Um, Buran never flew with people on board and that uh, the Soviet shuttle program never happened. And for, you know, just broader uh, historical context, right, this is basically the final year of the Soviet Union when this took place. And so we were really kind of um, uh, they were they were ready for there's going to be some big changes happening, as you can imagine, with the Soviet space program. And so ultimately, the SPK was uh, attached uh, magnetically uh, to the ex uh, the exterior of Gavant 2. And when Mir deorbited, it uh, burned up along with it. Uh, that's this week's uh, spaceflight event. Yeah, that's such a Soviet way of doing. I mean, or it just it just looks very like Russian. You know what I mean? Like, cause um, I'm thinking of the one that you know, Bruce McCandless, you know, had. It seemed, and I guess this was some years later. It was much more advanced, or at least much smaller. Cause oh, it was older actually. That was in '84. Oh wow, McCandless... cause that 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 surprises me because this. This one looks, I mean, like I'm just looking at the size, but you know, uh -huh. the SPK is huge. It's the same size as the astronaut, you know, I mean, and it weighs quite a bit more. So uh -huh. it's, it's massive. And I don't know how, how much the MMU that Bruce McCandless flew, I don't know how much that weighed or how big it was, like, like, you know, the dimensions, but it looked a lot smaller to me. Like it didn't look to be the uh -huh. same height, a good six feet tall. Um, I don't think it was that big, but that's how big this thing is, right? I mean, like roughly, it's huge. And I guess one thing you can see then in the MMU is that the the lower two uh, thruster pods uh, uh, extend a little further mm -hmm. down than the rest of the mm -hmm. body of the unit, whereas the Russian uh, Soviet one is a is a proper rectangle, like you know, all yeah. the way around. So uh, next week, which is uh, the second through the eighth of February. Uh, David, do you have a clue for us? I have a clue. Okay. And the clue for you is next week in 1977, a farewell salute. And if anyone thinks they know what that is in reference to, as always, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just one launch, but a couple other things. So let's start with one of those couple other things. <laughs> and what would that be, Ben? Yeah. Um, so we have uh, got a couple spacewalks coming up. The first one is on Wednesday, January 27th. The Coverage begins at 5.30 a.m., and the spacewalk will actually begin at 7.05 a.m. Uh, both of those times are Eastern, obviously. Um, this is Expedition 64, Spacewalk 69. Um, it's Mike Hopkins and Victor Glover. And we, we talked about what these spacewalks are already, so I'll just go ahead and move on to the next one. Uh, after that, on the same day, Wednesday, is a briefing ahead of the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover landing. This is... Uh, the landing is going to be fantastic, obviously. I don't know exactly what's going to be covered in the briefing, um, but I'm assuming there's going to be a Q&A, and those tend to be pretty interesting. So the Q&A begins at 4.30 p.m. Eastern time again on January the 27th. 
And then next up, we've got our only uh, launch. And so this will be on Friday, January 29th at 1230 UTC. And it's a Falcon 9 Block 5 Starlink launch, Starlink 17 in particular. And so uh, we kind of know how this goes now, right? This is going to be another batch of 60 satellites for the Mega Constellation. And uh, flying out of Kennedy uh, Launch Complex 39A, we could probably expect another uh, calm, easy, uh, routine uh, launch, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and then on February 1st uh, would be uh, the Expedition 64 or US Spacewalk 70. And uh, yeah, that would be with Mike Hopkins and Victor Glover as you mentioned, um, and that's going to be the coverage begins at 5.30 a.m. So, yeah, pretty early in the morning. But the actual spacewalk is scheduled for 7.05. And, it, yeah, that's Eastern. So check it out. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Well, then let's uh, deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review you wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at the orbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can join our discord for free during social distancing check our twitter or reddit for links we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com all right that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody See you.